Welcome to the 109th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are an overview of Patrick's weekend predictions and recapping a few more bowl games in week 17 of the NFL season. So let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. Starting in the NBA, Patrick went 3-1 and one with his weekend predictions. In the NFL, Patrick went 2-2. Two and two. Patrick went 3-1 and one in his NCAA basketball predictions. And in NCAA football, his predictions will be tracked via his predictions for the entire bowl, bowl game season and counted up at the end, which is approaching fast. So Patrick was 8-4 and four overall in this weekend's predictions, bringing him to 288 and 209 overall, a 57.9% winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts? Well, uh, pretty good week this week. Obviously, that's a 75% winning percentage individually this week, so that raised it up a lot. Um, in terms of my predictions, I mean, in the NBA, I'm thankful for DeMar DeRozan because I probably should have been 2-2, two and two, but he decided that not only on New Year's Eve would he hit a buzzer beater, which was not the game I predicted, but on New Year's Day against the Wizards, he would also hit a buzzer beater 3. Uh, this time in, well, I mean... It's not football, so double coverage is not exactly inaccurate. Is not exactly accurate, but he was being doubled in the corner uh, and got off the game-winning three when they were down by two uh, against the Wizards after Kyle Kuzma had hit a 30-foot three to go up by two for the Wizards. So crazy end to that Bulls-Wizards game. I'm lucky I won that one. Uh, the Lakers won. The Warriors pulled out a fourth quarter win over the Jazz. And the only prediction I lost was uh, the Celtics, where Robert Williams was a very surprising candidate to get a triple-double this season, but he did. Um, and that really, I mean, he really led the Celtics to that win over the Suns. Um, and that was my only loss in the NBA. My only loss in NCAA basketball was, I mean, it basically came down to one play. Seton Hall was down by two or three points, I think. Uh, and Charlie Moore blocked or, uh, yeah, Moore for Villanova blocked a layup attempt by Seton Hall that would have made it a really, really close game. Then they won by, I think, five or six off of some free throws at the end, obviously. But it was a lot closer than a five or six point game. It was really down to one, two points the whole, pretty much the whole second half. Uh, so that not too bad of a loss either. Uh, and then in the NFL, I mean, the Chiefs Bengals game could have gone either way for sure. The Bengals mounted a great comeback to win the AFC North. Um, and then in terms of my other loss, I believe it was, yeah, it was the Cowboys who, if you look at that game, they got kind of screwed over by the officials, which in my college football predictions became a common theme, and we'll talk about that eventually. Um, but Chase Edmonds fumbled the ball, and they didn't have a challenge to challenge it earlier because of uh, or because of the of a timeout they lost earlier in the game. Um, but I don't know, honestly, I don't know why they can't just review that. It's kind of stupid to me, but uh, it should have been reviewed, and it should have been ruled a fumble because it was clearly a fumble by Chase Edmonds. The Cowboys would have had two and a half minutes, roughly to go down the field uh, and then kick a game-winning or a game-tying field goal, send it to overtime, or get a touchdown and win it. And they would have still had, I mean, they wouldn't have had any timeouts, but they would still have two-minute two minute warning to work with. And I think they would have started on the 35 or their, four, or their own 40-yard line. So that should have been a Cowboys win, frankly. Um, I have no doubt that Dak would probably be able to get them down the field, at least to get it to overtime. Maybe they didn't, maybe they wouldn't have won, but they definitely would have gotten it to overtime, honestly. Uh, so... It's a little bit, um, I'm a little bit mad about that one, but overall can't be too mad, had a good week, uh, and that's about all I can say about it. All right, well, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website on Thursday. Now let's turn our attention to college football action over the past week uh, with college football bowl season wrapping up. 
So we'll take a look at some of the latest bowl games and the college football playoff semifinals, starting, Patrick, with your best games in college football. I will start with Clemson's win over Iowa State. Uh, Maybe not the most entertaining game if you like offense necessarily, uh, but overall it was a pretty good game. I mean, it was close throughout. A weird play where a ball was batted up into the air and uh, Brock Purdy decided to bat it forwards instead of down and Clemson got a pick six off of it. Uh, It was reminiscent of Marcus Mariota in the playoffs against the Chiefs, if you remember where uh, the ball got knocked down and he caught it himself. But the only difference was instead of being knocked down uh, for Iowa State, uh, Brock Purdy knocked it to Clemson for a touchdown. So a a little, obviously a little bit different, but kind of similar there. Uh, And overall Clemson, you know, they didn't have the season they wanted to have. But in reality, they're going to finish top 15 in the AP poll. And if you look at Clemson historically, that is above where they've been sitting for a long time. Um, so the, the, the program has ri- has risen to a really high level considering the fact that we consider a 10-win season where they're going to end top 15 as a disappointment. Um, and I think that's just a credit to what they've done recently. But overall, you know, they're not going to be happy with the season. But 10-win season, get some momentum going into next year. If you watched uh, the Under Armour, uh, I think it's called the All American Game that they, I think they call it that. Um, they had a really interesting. Uh, t- they had a great one of their commits had a really really great pick there. So uh, they take a game where they have really good defense. They have a really good defensive team. Their real problem this year has been quarterback play, um, and they take that with a ten win team and they add it with a cornerback who's making really good plays in All Star games. Clemson will be good next year. I, I I don't doubt it. And I honestly think they're probably going to open up as the favorites to win the ACC. And if they don't, it's probably just if, uh, I'd say it's probably Pitt or if it's Sam Hartman returning uh, for Wake Forest, and then Wake Forest might be the favorites. But I wouldn't doubt Clemson next season at all. Um, and moving on from that, speaking of Pitt, Pitt without Kenny Pickett, then without backup quarterback Nick Patty after he scored the first touchdown of the game. Well, actually, he got injured on while scoring the first touchdown of the game. Uh, in the end, though, they were up 21-10 to on Michigan State. They scored, set, they scored a touchdown in every single quarter, except for the fourth quarter where they failed to score, and Michigan State blanked them 21 to nothing in the fourth quarter. Michigan State had to drive at the beginning to cut it from, 21, uh, from 21-10 sorry, to 21-17. Uh, and then after that, Pitt through a pick six after Michigan State had taken the lead after Pitt had failed and stalled on offense a lot of times. Uh, and by the way, Pitt's only score of the second half was also a defensive touchdown, but then down 20 or up 21 to 17, uh, Pitt allowed Michigan State to drive down the field. I believe they converted two or three fourth downs on that, on that, uh, and, and I think at least two third and tens and fourth downs combined. Um, and then got a touchdown catch and then that was uh that was how they took the lead they took the lead 24 to 21 and then pit through a pick six with 40 seconds left which is why this score looks a little bit lopsided but in reality this was a really 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 close game uh and michigan state only won by 10 just because of that pick six that i mean really could have just been a pick and then you know just a kneel down but obviously if you have an opportunity to score in a bowl game if you're a starting linebacker who's a senior that being Cal Halliday in this situation, you're going to take it to the house. <laughs> yeah, also uh, Michigan State missing their best player, Kenneth Walker, who opted out of the game. Uh, so two key players missing for both teams in that game. That is true. And then obviously most people, want, if they wanted to be a little bit savvy with their picks, obviously, 
I'd say you hedge your bets on a team missing a, a running back rather than missing their quarterback, and I think that was the right pick in this game. And as we saw, while Michigan State could not run the ball at all, uh, and they weren't able to the entire game, but when you needed it most, Pitt could not get good quarterback play. So I think in the end, it traded off in Michigan State's favor, as most people expected it to. But moving on from a game that was not lacking in quarterback play or scoring whatsoever, Purdue beat Tennessee 48-45 to with a little help from their friends, a.k.a. the referees, in overtime. Uh, the, what I am referencing is the fact that this game was 45-45 to going into overtime. First of all, Tennessee barely got it there. They converted on a fourth and goal on the 13-yard line with about a minute left to tie the game uh, and send it into overtime. But uh, <laughs> in overtime, Tennessee on a fourth and goal very obviously scored a touchdown, and it was not called a touchdown. That's about... That's pretty much the most accurate description I can give of it. That is really what happened. Um, don't ask me how they didn't rule it. Look it up yourself if you want to. If you want to be perplexed by how bad referees can be at times. Um, and then after that, obviously that was a fourth and goal. They reviewed it. They did. They said they didn't score. Um, and because of that, Purdue only needed a field goal to win the game. I won't say that Purdue kicked the field goal and they would have regardless. I'm not going to say that they that Tennessee was guaranteed to win had that touchdown scored because Purdue would have changed their play calls, um, at least a little bit, I would assume. But Tennessee should have had a chance in this game and Purdue's the, the help Purdue got basically made it um, just down to the kicker and it shouldn't have been that way. They should have had to score a touchdown and I don't know if they would have. I don't know if they wouldn't have. I don't know if they would have gone for two. You never know what happens. But Tennessee at least deserved a chance in this game, and they were robbed of that chance. Yeah, I don't know how the replay official didn't overturn that call. It was just awful. Uh, yeah, and then moving on from that, another game with a lot of fireworks that actually ended in the same score. Ohio State beats Utah in their bowl game, the Rose Bowl, 48-45. to uh, This game was really, 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 really interesting. Uh, and when you, when you look at it, I mean, look, Utah was up 14 to nothing at the end of the first quarter. They were up 35 to 21 at the end of the first half. Ohio State scored 21 points in the second quarter. After being blanked in the first quarter, Ohio State Ohio State scored double digits in every single quarter in this game uh, with two scores at least. Uh, three touchdowns in the second, even with with a fumble on the one yard line too at the end of the half. So they really could have scored 28 in the second quarter alone. Then they scored 10 in the third. Then they scored 17 in the fourth, and their defense finally started to, I mean, I wouldn't even say play well, just really exist, honestly, because they pretty much weren't there at all <laughs> in the first half. Uh, and that led to Ohio State winning this game 48-45 to in a very interesting Rose Bowl. I know you're about to talk about the players, so don't say it. I'm going to get to them later. No, I'm going to say that, uh, Iowa, that Utah's quarterback got hurt during the game, so that helped Ohio State's defense look a little better in the second half. Yeah, although uh, they had held Utah to only yeah. three points in the third quarter before then. And by the way, Utah lost by three. They did not get it going for it on fourth and two from the 30-yard line. And I was saying the whole game, that will come back to bite them because of the fact that the way Ohio State was scoring you got to take any points opportunity you get. If you have an opportunity to say, we're going to kick a field goal, or and we're going to take two, the risk. Stay two scores ahead. Yeah, or we're going to take the risk of going for of going for it on fourth down just on the risk that we might score a touchdown later or even settle for a field goal later. Don't do it. Kick the field goal. They didn't kick the field goal. They lost by a field goal. Oh, who would have seen that coming? But bad decision-making by Utah, but really, 
Honestly, Utah deserved to be in the Rose Bowl. They proved that they were a good team. Honestly, they made a pretty good case for a playoff expansion, too, because this would have been a conference winner. They were clearly good enough to hang with one of the better teams that, well, I'd say probably the best team that didn't make the playoff. I would make that argument. Um, And they did a good job staying with them, and I think Utah is definitely deserving of if they expanded the playoff. I don't think that they would necessarily beat Alabama or Georgia or anybody like that, but I think they could make it a game with someone and even just wear them out a little bit, which we see as an effect in the NFL when guys get injured in one round and then can't play the next round because they just played such a physical game. So something to note with the playoff expansion possibly looming. Yeah, Utah would have put a, been, a, been a good opponent for, for a higher-ranked team. All right, let's move on to the uh, big upsets in bowl game action. Well, Mississippi State was favored by a lot. I want to say by double digits by by the start of this game, maybe only nine and a half technically. Um, but Texas Tech just came out and whacked Mississippi State. Mississippi State scored seven points. If you don't know anything about Mississippi State, they don't run the ball, they throw the ball all the time, and all they do is score points. They not necessarily have had a terrible defense all season, but they've had a decent defense, and really it's been more reliant on their offense. Obviously, that's kind of their game plan is to just outscore whoever they play. But overall, Texas Tech just completely, I mean, frankly, I'm questioning now. I don't have words for it because I'm questioning... If the SEC is so good, why why couldn't any of their defenses stop Mississippi State? Yet a team from the conference that's known for having no defense somehow held them to seven points. You tell me, or you can tell me that outside of Alabama and Georgia, first of all, not only in the SEC but in all of college football, there aren't many good teams this year. I would I would make that I would honestly make that argument. And uh, as we'll see later, that was kind of you, you saw that in the playoff games, uh, but. Texas Tech pulling off a huge upset, a big win for their program, although their coach is already leaving to go somewhere else. The coach that was the interim coach, uh, they fired their coach midseason, so not really going to carry much momentum because they're going to have an entirely different team, and I'm I'm assuming guys will probably transfer considering that uh, they have a different coach coming in. Uh, And then you have South Carolina beating North Carolina. This was definitely a game where North Carolina was favored by 10. Um, they were at least favored by 10, probably 11. Uh, Double-digit favorites. North Carolina has, well, what we thought was an NFL quarterback uh, with Howell, but uh, it, it, he has been anything but that recently. Um, so North Carolina has not played that great all season. They've been up and down, uh, favored by 10. But, you know, some games, this team just didn't show up. Uh, and this was one of those games. Uh, they In the first quarter... South Carolina was up 18 to nothing. South Carolina did not have an incomplete pass until the third quarter. And they were playing two quarterbacks. Mind you, not only were they playing two quarterbacks the whole game, but the quarterbacks they were playing were not the first string, because he got injured before the season, not the second string, because he transferred after hearing that Spencer Rattler was going to be coming to South Carolina uh, at the end of the year, not their third string, because he also got injured, but their fourth and fifth string quarterbacks had one combined incompletion while switching in and out of the game in the third quarter. North Carolina's defense, was they didn't come to play. They didn't play the game at all. Um, and that's why they lost. And South Carolina just kept marching the ball down the field and they ran out the clock so easily. This was a big upset. But if you looked at how North Carolina's defense has played all season, it was probably not too surprising that, if they, that they might give up 38 points, but the offense normally was able to make up for that. I mean, a great piece of evidence for that is the Wake Forest game where they won 45 to 42. Uh, 
A great evidence of that, again, is where they had the game close against NC State because their offense put up 40 points and their defense just completely choked the game away by allowing two touchdowns in the final minute and a half. So this is a common thing for North Carolina, but this time their offense didn't show up to really save the defense uh, from a lot of scrutiny. This time they were not there. Was one of those quarterbacks the guy who was a graduate assistant? He was a coach at the beginning of the year? That was the third That was the third string. Yeah. Oh, that's the guy who got hurt. Yes, he got hurt earlier, which which resulted in the original backup coming in, and then that guy got injured later in the season. Their first string got injured before the season started. So, yes, that the grad assistant was technically the third string, became the backup, and then was obviously the starter after so the starter. So they, they won a bowl game playing two guys that were lower on the depth chart than a guy who at the beginning of the season wasn't even a player. Correct. Unbelievable. All right, let's go to the most impressive teams. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe because Matt Corral was out uh, from – pretty much the end of the first quarter, I believe, start of the second quarter. Uh, people could discredit Baylor for this win a lot. But Baylor really looked great in this game. Um, and while Matt Corral was on the field, he threw a pick on the second play from scrimmage. It's not like Baylor wasn't controlling the game, at least defensively, while Corral was in the game. And other than one miraculous drive by Luke Altmaier, where he was just throwing it everywhere... Um, Baylor's defense just showed up. I mean, Baylor's defense, I think, outscored Ole Miss, actually. I think, well, they at least tied them in scoring. It was 7-7 to if you look at Baylor's defense against Ole Miss's offense, which, by the way, was a top-five total offense in terms of yards during the season. So uh, Baylor just looked crazy good. And speaking of Big 12 teams, Oklahoma State came back from 28-7 to down and scored 30 unanswered points. To go, or not 30 unanswered points, sorry, 28 unanswered points to go up on Notre Dame and then eventually win the game 37-35. to 35. Uh, Notre Dame really just choked this game away. I think there's no there's no real words other than that. I mean, they were up 28-7, to seven, let Oklahoma State score at the end of the first half. It was kind of miraculous. Oklahoma State opened up the third quarter with 17 straight points, uh, unanswered again. And then also six to start the fourth quarter to go up 37-28. to 28. And then Notre Dame only answered with one touchdown near the end of the game, obviously hoping for a miracle. Uh, let's just put it this way. Notre Dame's formula for winning games is not Jack Cohn throwing the ball. I think he threw the ball 68 times. And uh, let's just say he transferred from Wisconsin. He's not exactly used to throwing the ball 68 times. The first 30 or so came out great and they were winning by a lot. But once you got down to throw 68, it was not looking too good. I mean, he had 430 yards, I think, in the first half on 33 passes, and and he was 24 of 33. The second half, he was something like 14 of 35 for 50 yards and a pick. Uh, So, not good. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's not not really much to say about it. And, you know, I, I was high on Notre Dame with their new coach hiring because it seemed like the players were playing really inspired, for, or that they would just, it seems like they liked the guy that they had brought in, who they brought him in from in-house. He was their defensive coordinator, Marcus Freeman. Uh, but apparently that didn't bode so well for them in the bowl game. And I uh, thought Oklahoma State might be a little bit disappointed, but uh, Oklahoma State ended the season one yard short because their running back wasn't actually in the game. They're starting running back uh, and Jalen Warren. And then in this game, he was there. Not necessarily made the difference because Spencer Sanders was actually, uh, Spencer Sanders being Oklahoma State's quarterback, was actually their leading rusher in this game with 125 rushing yards. But Oklahoma State had their guys back and they really played well to prove that they probably honestly could have been in the playoffs themselves. Yeah, biggest comeback in the history, I think, of Oklahoma State football. And uh, their coach, Mike Gundy, called it the biggest win in the history 
of their program. All right, let's uh, go to the playoff semifinal action. Well, this is the proof that maybe an expanded playoff might not be a good idea because even putting four teams in there isn't necessarily always too great. Uh, Georgia, well, going out of order a little bit, Georgia uh, ended the night with a 34-11 win over Michigan. They were up 24 to nothing at some point in this game. Michigan answered with one field goal. Or actually, sorry, they were up 14 to nothing. Michigan answered with a field goal. Uh, then Georgia answered with more points, turned it to 27 to 3 before the half. Uh, no scoring in the third quarter. Michigan's defense played really well. Uh, and then Georgia got one touchdown before Michigan got one back at the end of the game to end with a odd, odd, odd scoreline of 34 to 11. Um, you could talk about a lot of things that Georgia did well in this game. I would say the offense and the defense stepped up very well. And I think really the big key was that they played an NFL type of style um, against Michigan's best edge rushers. And outside of that, they really said, look, we're not going to let Aiden Hutchinson and David Ojabo beat us. Let's see if the rest of the defense can. And quite honestly, there wasn't a single other player on the defense that did anything to step up. So it wasn't enough for Michigan, um, and Georgia's plan worked perfectly. They they said, let everybody else beat us, and none of the other guys could beat them, and some missed coverages on Brock Bowers early in the game. Same thing on James Cook. Uh, every single time James Cook got matched up against a linebacker, that linebacker being Junior Colson primarily, uh, Stetson Bennett sent him out there and was like, hmm, I see man coverage, I see my running back, who's in the SEC, and I see Michigan's freshman linebacker. I know who I'm throwing the ball to. I know what route I'm running, and I know it's going to be a touchdown. If it's not a touchdown, it's because I threw it poorly, and I'm going to carry him out of bounds, but he's still going to get 30 yards. That happened. James Cook had four receptions for 110 yards uh, in this game, and he's a running back. So Michigan really could not do anything to stop anything that Georgia had. Um, George Pickens even flattened Dax Hill a few times on blocks, looking like an offensive lineman. Jordan Davis outran most of Michigan's skill players, and he's 360 pounds. Uh, so there wasn't really much Michigan could do in this game. And the same thing happened with Cincinnati, who gave up an NCAA record in yards before contact, uh, rushing-wise. So Alabama's big old line came in. They had been they had been kind of not necessarily a weakness for Alabama, but probably if you look at a top five team, if there was an area that you could poke holes in and kind of say this is what is the reason why they're not number one their offensive line was probably what was to blame at the beginning of the season. And then in the Georgia game and in this game, that O-line came to play and they dominated Cincinnati. And that resulted in Alabama's win along with some great play from their defensive players. Yep, we're getting the rematch we thought we were going to get in the uh, in the college football national championship game. Should be a great game. We'll talk about that probably in our next podcast or two podcasts. Let's go to the most impressive players you saw in bowl action or the uh, playoffs? Well, I'm going to start with some playoff players and then move on to what I think is the most important bowl game. Otherwise, uh, Will Anderson had six tackles, two tackles for loss, and two sacks for Alabama, part of the defensive effort that I was talking about. Darian Kendrick for Georgia had five tackles, one tackle for loss, and two interceptions, both of them at pretty important times uh, for Georgia. And then, honestly, I was impressed with Stetson Bennett because he was able to not turn the ball over. He did not take a single sack in this game and even used his legs to some effect. I think he got two or three first downs running, uh, three carries for 32 yards in total, 20 of 30 passing for 313 yards and three touchdowns. And then you get to, you know what? They weren't playing an as important of a game because they lost to Michigan. But my, oh my, did Ohio State's offense show up in the bowl game against Utah. Jackson Smith and Jigba had 15 receptions for 347 yards and three touchdowns. And by the way, the guy throwing it to him, C.J. Stroud, 
37 of 46, 573 yards, six touchdowns. He ended up three yards short of the all-time record for any bowl game whatsoever in total yardage. And Jackson Smith and Jigba obviously obliterated the record for total yards, obviously that not being from a quarterback. Um, the storyline in this game was that Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson were not going to be playing, and people wondered how the opt-outs would affect Ohio State. Uh, well, you know, the one thing I will say about Ohio State is that all season long, people pay so much attention to Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, probably because they're draft eligible, but Jackson Smith and Jigba actually led the team in every single receiving category. Uh, and people don't realize that. And he didn't do it just because he had 15 receptions for 350 yards, three touchdowns at bowl game. He was leading them before the bowl game. Now he's leading them by about 600 yards and 10 and, and 20 catches and probably four or five touchdowns. But he led all those categories over Garrett Wilson, over Chris Olave the entire season. They were going to be fine. And then they also had the number one overall receiving recruit before or this year as a freshman, Julian Fleming. And they had Marvin Harrison Jr. So Ohio State was definitely fine. And by the way, Mar Marvin Harrison Jr. had the other three reception touchdowns uh, from C.J. Stroud. So Ohio State was going to be fine with their personnel. I mean, they had enough receivers. We always know that. And, and take into account, the, this program has such good wide receivers that Jamison Williams, who's probably the number one receiver in the country by stats this year, had to transfer out to go to Alabama instead because he couldn't get playing time at Ohio State, but he could get playing time on the defending champions, and probably who might win the national championship again, Alabama. It's ridiculous. The receiving room is insane. Uh, and Jackson Smith and Jigbo's proof of that. And by the way, C.J. Stroud probably going to be the best returning quarterback next year. Yep. Well, uh, the uh, Smith and Olave actually said that Smith and, uh, and Jigbo was their best receiver on the team. Those two guys even admitted it. So uh, they definitely echo what you've said. All right, that wraps up our look back at college football. Let's move on to our weekly review of NFL action. Let's start off with your thoughts on the best games from Week 17. Uh, I thought definitely the best game was the Bengals at the Chiefs, or sorry, the Chiefs at the Bengals, where the Bengals won 34 to 31. Just a back and forth game of a lot of scoring. Uh, the Chiefs only scored three points in the second half. They were up 28-17 at the half, and the Bengals outscored them 17 to three in the second half to end up winning the game 34 to 31. A great effort by the Bengals, and that actually clinched the AFC North for them. And the Chiefs weren't quite able to clinch the one seed, also because of the Titans result that we'll get to later. But now the Chiefs don't even control their own destiny for the number one seed, so this game was very, very important for them. Uh, and that all-important bye is now slipping away from them. But moving on from that game, speaking of games that were very, very important, the Rams went on the road and beat the Ravens 20-19. Uh, after he had struggled and thrown a pick six earlier in the game and thrown another pick later in the game, uh, Matt Stafford was able to lead the Rams down the field uh, with a completion on fourth and five to Odell Beckham. And then another completion, I think, on the play right after that, actually, to Odell Beckham for a touchdown. The Rams went up. They went for two, didn't get it. Uh, they were trying to push it to 22-19. Vaughn Miller came in with the sack with 19 seconds left. That resulted in the Ravens having to get all their players who were all the way downfield to try to spike it and go for one last play. And with three seconds left, they tried to do the little pitch play, and Aaron Donald absolutely clobbered whoever caught the ball, and that ended the game. And I mean, look, that is really what the Rams' formula is for winning. And by the way, there are the in-season pickups that the Rams are always making that, I mean, well, they have no first-round picks for a while. They're pretty much the opposite of the Thunder in the NBA. Instead of having every single first-round pick, they have zero for like eight years or something. Um, 
this is when that comes in and it works. I mean, the Rams traded away a starting linebacker and some picks to get Von Miller. This sack, what that sack that ended pretty much effectively ended the game was just what the Rams needed. And the Odell Beckham pickup obviously had them able to get, uh, they had, they had to replace Robert Woods. Obviously he actually came in before Robert Woods got injured, but because of him being there uh, and the Rams thinking of the rich get richer mentality, because they brought him in while Woods was still there, now that Woods is gone, he's there to fill that void of where Cooper Cup can be the decoy now, and instead of it being Robert Woods, who's the one who benefits off of the decoy, it is now uh, Odell Beckham Jr., and he got that fourth down play because of it right at the sticks, and you know, he's a really trustworthy player, obviously, he has a lot of talent, so obviously he, he's very reliable for Matt Stafford, and they seem to be having a little bit of a better connection now, but uh, that's how the Rams won that game, and for the Ravens, that pretty much tanks their playoff hopes. They need a lot of help to get in. We'll talk about that later. Moving on from that, the Raiders beat the Colts 23-20. They won on another game-ending field goal, just like they did at the Browns. I believe that was two weeks ago. If not, it was maybe, I guess, I think it was two weeks ago on Saturday night. It might have been three weeks ago, possibly. I don't know. It's been a while. Um, but the Raiders, uh, this this win was really, really important. It shaped the AFC playoff picture. Uh, the Colts, I think, could have clinched a playoff spot in this game at least gotten very close to it. And now instead, Vegas has set up a very, very important game against the Los Angeles Chargers uh, that will end the regular season that we'll talk about later. But the Raiders played a great game in this. Uh, I mean, they were up at the half, 16 to 10. They were up actually 16 to three right before, or sorry, 13 to 10. They were up by even more right before the half. And then Jonathan Taylor got a one-yard touchdown right at the end of the half. I think it was the last play of the half, actually, um, of the first half. And uh, the Colts took the lead again, but Carson Wentz missed a wide open T.Y. Hilton on a third and eight. They punted. The Raiders got the ball back, scored, took the lead on that drive. Uh, Carson Wentz got the Colts down, well, really more like Jonathan Taylor, got the Colts down uh, to get the game-tying field goal. And then Derek Carr and Hunter Renfro led the Raiders down the field all the way to field goal range. And then they were able to kick the game-winning field goal with two seconds left. Daniel Carlson now has two game-winning field goals this season. Actually, three, now that I think about it. One against the Cowboys in overtime, two, to go with his new four-year contract extension that he signed a few weeks ago. Very, very reliable kicker. Honestly, he's turning into one of the better kickers in the league. He's probably up there uh, with the Justin Tuckers and even Matt Gay, who's had the most accurate season this year. He's up there with those two as really one of the best kickers in the league, and he's been really good in clutch time. All right, what about your most disappointing teams? Well, the Cowboys had a golden opportunity to really uh, make it make their playoff road a lot easier. And honestly, they also could have buried the Cardinals. Uh, but they their offense just decided that they were going to take a week off again. And it seems like just when you thought they were clicking again, seems like kind of what you thought at the beginning of the season, they're just off. One Again, I mean, Dak said, you know, everybody was talking about Dak being in a slump, and he said he was tired of it. He's still in a slump. He had one week where he came out of the slump, and he's right back into it. And frankly you look at who was playing on Washington, maybe it's just the fact that he didn't really play a good defense whatsoever. If you look at how many players were playing for Washington, and then the two starters that they still had, they were literally fighting each other on the sidelines. So I don't know exactly how much stock we can put into that win over Washington. It, it, it reminds me kind of of what happened against the Broncos where the Cowboys were so terrible and everybody was talking about how bad their offense was, and it looked really, really bad for them. Uh, and then they came back and they had a good week next week. But then they kind of just were playing average, and now they're back to playing average again, and it's not enough to win games. Their defense creates a lot of turnovers, but if a team can avoid the turnovers against them, 
They are not that formidable of a defense to go up against. It's just the potential to, for them to get four picks in a game, for them to get uh, like six sacks and one sack fumble and two other interceptions. But if you're able to take care of the ball against the Cowboys, they're not honestly too hard to beat if you're one of the better teams. Speaking of being one of the better teams, uh, now with Antonio Brown off the roster, the Buccaneers were able to win 28-24. to And why did I say he's off the roster? Well, I mean, technically they won the game with him on the ro- Well, it's a little confusing because Antonio Brown decided to take off his jersey, take off his pads, take off his shirt, take off his gloves, throw them all into the stands except for the jersey which he, and the pads, which he left on the sidelines, uh, and jump his way, jumping for joy in the uh, Jets' opposing end zone, pumping up the crowd, running into the locker room where state troopers thought he was a fan on the field, uh, and leaving and seemingly asking for an Uber. And now he popped up at the Nets game courtside against the Grizzlies. Uh, I don't know what he's exactly doing, but uh, he's done. Uh, He's done with the Buccaneers. I don't see any other way any other team would want to pick him up. And frankly, if you picked him up, I don't even think he'd ever show up anyway. Um, But he's done with the Buccaneers. Now they're really down to, to, to some, I mean... They don't have any of Tom Brady's top options anymore. Uh, Leonard Fournette is out for the rest of the regular season. Uh, He might be back in the playoffs. Of course, Godwin is out for the season for sure. They really are just down to Mike Evans and Rob Gronkowski from what we thought were the weapons before the season. They signed Le'Veon Bell to try to make up for it, but honestly, at this point in his career, there's a reason why he wasn't signed until Week 17. He's not exactly at his peak anymore, so, you know, uh, he's not the greatest replacement for Leonard Fournette. But I guess that was just while he's not there in the regular season and eventually Fournette will come back in the in the postseason and that's their hope. But right now, the Buccaneers should not have made that game close whatsoever. They're lucky that they even won because the Jets played some pretty bad coverage uh, with 15 seconds left, which you can ask the Raiders about that last season where they also gave up a ridiculously long touchdown at the end of the game to them. But uh, the Buccaneers probably shouldn't have left this game close at all and it was just way, way, way too close. Uh, So I'm a little bit disappointed in that performance, but at least they didn't lose like the Cowboys did. All right, what about your most impressive teams? If you put up 50 in an NFL game, you're going to end up on this list. The Patriots scored 50 points against the Jaguars. Okay, it's the Jaguars, fine. The Jaguars actually have had a somewhat okay defense this season. For as bad of a team as they are sitting at 2-14, their defense isn't actually that bad. There are teams that are in the playoff race that I would argue have worse defenses than the Jaguars. This game, it did not look like that at all. The Patriots won 50-10. to 10. Uh, Not really much to say about it, honestly. The Patriots just dominated the Jaguars. Um, then moving on, the Dolphins had won seven games in a row, and the Titans just said, to hell with it. This team isn't that good. You want to see us prove it? Here we go. 34-3. to The Titans absolutely embarrassed the, Dolphin, embarrassed the Dolphins. I mean, all the offensive rhythm that it seemed the Dolphins had was just gone. Jalen Waddell had one reception for zero yards on four targets until the fourth quarter where in garbage time he got a few more receptions. And then the Titans, as soon as the Dolphins looked like they might have a chance again, they were up 17-3 to at the half. They scored nothing in the third quarter, but as soon as they were like, okay, you know what? The Dolphins might be able to come back. Let's just go out and put up 17 to nothing in the fourth quarter. Let's really put them away. So the Titans really impressing. And after this win, they are now tied with the Chiefs for the one seed, and by virtue of their giant win over the Chiefs way earlier in the season when the Chiefs were not on the same page at all, they are actually in position to win the one seed, and they control their own destiny. One win, and they get the one seed. Uh, moving on from that, the Philadelphia Eagles clinched a playoff spot. Uh, that is a sentence that I didn't think I would say. 
for several I years. would guess probably until 2025. Yeah. Uh, but Jalen Hurts has arrived early as a runner. Uh, they're running an offense that really is hard to play against because it just doesn't exist much in the league. And if you want to tell me about about a guy that can run it on the practice squad, you can go ahead and tell me who it is because I bet you, you can't. Uh, it, it, even if you had Kyler Murray playing for your team and you play against that guy in practice, Kyler Murray can run, but he's not 6'6". And Jalen Hurts is just huge. He's a huge guy. He's a runner. And the Eagles have won games pretty much. This is probably the most old-fashioned, old-school team. They remind me of, like, Iowa, like, constantly uh, in in college. They just run the ball, and they play great defense. Uh, since, I believe, they, they're 2-5 and five start, they're actually second in the league in yards per play allowed, and they're also first by far in rushing offense. So you put that together. First of all, you're looking at an old-school team for sure, all running in defense. But at the same time, if you're first in something in the league, if you're first in any category, and then you're second in yards per play on defense— you have a pretty good chance to be a good team. I'm not going to go say that they're going to beat someone in the first round of the playoffs, but they actually do deserve to be in the playoffs because they have a strength. That is very, very clear. Uh, and this win, this, they moving on from that, I never actually said the score. They won 20-16 to 16 at Washington. They were losing, uh, I believe, 10-7 to 7 and then 16-7 in this game. Uh, blanked Washington in the second half, won 20-16 off of 13, uh, a 13-0 second half. So, a great comeback win for the Eagles to clinch that playoff spot. Uh, and then in the most Washington football team way uh, ever, uh, the stands collapsed as Eagles fans were trying to celebrate Jalen Hurts walking off the field. Uh, I think all the fans were safe, but I don't exactly know. I've, I'm now hearing of uh, some some claims that Washington was lying about exactly what happened to those people's safeties. Um, but we'll, talk, we'll figure that out later. That, I'll leave that one to the lawyers. But um, look. That, that was the most Washington thing ever. I mean, if you know anything about Washington, this year other teams have brought their own benches because they've claimed that the heated benches on Washington's sidelines don't work. Uh, and it's just, they've turned into a very, very, uh, I don't know the word for it. They're just very, I'm going to invent a word. They're very make fun of, make funable, make fun ofable. That, that's what Washington is at this point. And uh, that continued in this game. All right, what about your most impressive players for the week? I will start with Jamar Chase of Cincinnati, who had 11 receptions, 266 yards, and three touchdowns receiving uh, in the AFC North clinching game uh, for Cincinnati. I mean, he was just ridiculous in this game. So was Joe Burrow, by the way. Obviously, if he had 266 yards receiving and three touchdowns, then uh, Joe Burrow must have thrown for a lot, too. Uh, But Jamar Chase was definitely the hero of that game. Then you have Najee Harris. With 28 carries for 188 yards and one touchdown, Pittsburgh finally running the ball and actually keeping themselves alive in the playoff race uh, with their win over the Browns. And then you have T.J. Watt, who had five tackles, four sacks, three tackles for loss, two pass deflections, which is a lot for a defensive end, um, and five quarterback hits. So J.J. Watt with it, or sorry, T.J. Watt with an incredible game uh, in Big Ben's final game in Pittsburgh. Obviously, didn't actually talk about that game, but. Uh, pretty important game for Pittsburgh as they stay in the playoff race, but it wasn't necessarily a good game. I'm not necessarily impressed because the Browns are not that good, um, but we're talking about for that reason. And then let's move on to the AFC playoff picture. Talked about the first two already. Uh, Tennessee and Kansas City have both clinched their divisions. 
Tennessee is at the cur is currently at the number one seed after uh, they have well they have the tiebreaker over Kansas City and I talked about how that loss by Kansas City and the win by Tennessee moved them to the number one seed. Cincinnati is now at the three seed with a clinched division for them at ten and six. Buffalo is ten and six. Uh, at the four seed, they have not clinched the division yet, but they have clinched a playoff berth. Same thing as New England, who is at number five, who are 10 and six with clinching a playoff berth. However, if Buffalo and New England both win, Buffalo still takes number four seed. All it does is it just says who's going to play. Well, Buffalo and New England will be playing each other if they're both uh, have the same record, I believe, uh, unless something crazy happens otherwise uh, or elsewhere. But the, the winner of the division does get the home game against each other, so that's pretty important. Uh, then you have Indianapolis, who after their w loss falls to 9-7 and seven and the 6th seed, tied with the Chargers, who are 9-7 and seven at the 7th seed, and now Vegas, 9-7 uh, and seven at the 8th seed. You have Pittsburgh at 8-7-1, and one, who are still somehow not eliminated. And then you have Miami at 8-8, eight eight, who are eliminated, but technically still ahead of not eliminated, Baltimore at 8-8. Eight eight. Uh, then you have Cleveland and Denver, both at 7-9, who have been eliminated. Uh, the AFC is ridiculous. I will get into the scenarios of what will happen next week later. Uh, let's move on to the NFC playoff picture. Green Bay clinched the number one overall seed after clinching the division uh, two weeks ago. You have the Rams now at the two seed because of the tiebreaker win over Tampa Bay. Uh, they are at 12-4. and four. They have not clinched the division yet because of Arizona. Uh, but Tampa Bay is now at three. They have clinched their division at 12-4. and four. Dallas has clinched their division at 11-5. They're in the four slot. Then you have Arizona, who's at 11 and 5, who has clinched their division—sorry, who has clinched their playoff berth, but obviously still fighting for the division because they're fighting with the Rams. Then you have San Francisco at 9 and 7, who actually could miss the playoffs with a loss to the Rams and a New Orleans Saints win. But Philadelphia at 9 and 7 has clinched their playoff berth already. Then you have Minnesota, Atlanta, and Washington, who are officially eliminated this week with their losses. All right, so let's now move on. Move to the next week. Let's talk about the scenarios. Uh, Kansas City at Denver on Saturday will decide the course of the one seed pretty much. If Kansas City wins, then it's a winner-take-all game for Tennessee uh, where they would get the one seed if they win, and then if they lose, then Kansas City would get the one seed. Uh, but if Kansas City loses and then Tennessee loses, actually the Patriots and the Bengals can still get the one seed in some crazy scenarios. I don't exactly know them, but uh, we'll talk. Uh, you got to figure it out. Look at a, look at a scenario simulator because I, I really... I can't keep track of all this. It's a little bit too confusing for me, honestly. <laughs> um, then you have Indianapolis, who with a win over Jacksonville moves to 10-7, and seven, uh, and then that would set up a winner-take-all game in the Chargers versus the Raiders. Um, and then with a very unlikely loss, they would miss the playoffs 100% if Las Vegas loses. Uh, and then their loss would also be able to open the door for Baltimore making the playoffs. Uh, Baltimore needs basically every team to be 9-7, and seven as, as many 9-7 and seven teams as possible. Uh, and it has to be the right teams, too. Um, Pittsburgh at Baltimore, as described, this game's also at Sunday at 10. As described just now, Baltimore can get in, but this is the only scenario that they can do it in. Baltimore must win to get to 9-8, and eight, beat Pittsburgh. Then they need the Chargers in Indianapolis specifically to, to lose. They can't have Vegas lose because then Vegas would get in over them by virtue of their tiebreaker win over them. Uh, and then Vegas would get the sixth seed in that situation at 10 and 7, and Baltimore's head-to-head -head wins over the Chargers in Indianapolis would lead them into the playoffs at the seventh seed. If Pittsburgh uh, beats Baltimore and the Chargers and Raiders do not end in a tie and Indianapolis finds a way to lose to Jacksonville, then the Steelers will somehow climb into the playoffs. Uh, that's crazy to me that they're still alive, but they are. 
And if they had won that game against the Lions and they were at 10 and 6 right now, honestly, they'd be, or, or if they were at 9 and 6 right now, sorry, uh, they'd be sitting pretty, honestly. They would be sitting in a pretty good place. But unfortunately, or sorry, at 9 and 7, they would, they, because of that tie, they're not. And uh, that that's really a missed opportunity by them. Uh, and then moving on. To San Francisco at the Rams on Sunday at 125. The Rams win the NFC West with a win, simple as that, and would clinch the number two seed. If if uh, San Francisco wins, they clinch their possible playoff spot with a win, and the Rams' loss would also open up the possibility of Arizona winning the NFC West. However, if San Francisco loses, then that would open the possibility for a Saints win on Sunday uh, to actually a Saints win, sorry, over the Falcons, that would open the door for the Saints to make the playoffs. And then uh, finally, you have Seattle at Arizona, which is important because if the Rams lose, then Arizona can clinch the division with a win at Se- or against Seattle at home. And finally, to end the season, you have the Chargers at the Raiders. The final game of the regular season is at least guaranteed to decide one final playoff spot. Uh, I don't know, obviously, as, this, as I just described in those crazy scenarios, it depends on what happens in the early games in terms of which slot they're deciding, if they're deciding multiple, if they're deciding which teams, uh, if these two are important in it. However, the Chargers and the Raiders in a tie would be the easiest scenario. That 100% does eliminate Pittsburgh no matter what happens in any of the other games. One thing I have to say about that game, that is a really good test for a young quarterback, that being Justin Herbert to really prove if he can be one of the generational quarterbacks. I think this is where, for those guys, this is kind of, this is a game where you prove that you're really going to be a generational talent. you got to go on the road and beat a team where it's a winner-take-all game for the playoffs. Um, but speaking of that, before we get before we end this episode of the podcast, um, it's kind of interesting to me, you know, everybody's talking about how all the season records, the single season records are going to get beaten because of the fact that there's an extra week now. I would like to credit Mark Andrews, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Cooper Cup, Robert Quinn, and Jonathan Taylor for breaking records in Week 17, which means that they didn't need the extra week to break their records. Jonathan Taylor with rushing yards uh, for the Colts, Robert Quinn with a franchise record in sacks with 18. By the way, a very underrated season. No one's really talking about it, but he should be in the Defensive Player of the Year conversation, obviously with TJ Watt too. Uh, Cooper Cup with the Rams franchise record in receiving yards. Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow in passing yards, and Mark Andrews for receiving yards in Baltimore's history. But credit to those guys for breaking the single-season team records that they did without needing the extra game. That wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next next podcast, which will be on Friday, January 7th, where we will focus on basketball with our weekly analysis of NBA and NCAA action. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his picks for next weekend's games, his latest NCAA basketball tournament bracket, which was posted on Saturday, and his next bracket, which will be posted tomorrow. Uh, And finally, his predictions for every college football bowl game and the college football playoffs, which have now uh, been updated for the championship game, are also on our website. All of that at 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.